today, Smarties, we have such a treat for you. We have the incomparable Dr. Sally Shaywitz joining us on the podcast today. She is the author of Overcoming Dyslexia, which came out with a second edition that has blown our minds. Get ready to go back to school, Smarties, because this one is a special episode. There was so much good content and so many wonderful things that she was sharing with us. We've actually chosen to split it into two episodes. So you'll hear part two of our conversation with her next week. In today's episode, she talks about her advocacy work with policymakers, the signs of dyslexia, the sea of strengths model, the Connecticut longitudinal study, and the Shaywitz dyslexia screening. You won't hear a lot of me and Steph because we are going back to school and listening to Dr. Shaywitz's brilliance. If you enjoy the content from our podcast, we would be so honored if you would give us a review on whatever forum you listen to our podcast on. And it makes us feel so good when we go and see the impact that the podcast has had on you. And it also allows for others to find important episodes like this one. Let's go back to school. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 151 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are super thrilled to have Dr. Shaywitz with us to talk about dyslexia. Welcome. Pleasure to be here with you. Yay. <laughs> Thanks so much for agreeing to come on. Steph was so excited when she told me. Yeah. This is going to be a great conversation. It really is. Just eye-opening. Everybody, you get ready for your brains to explode Yep. in a nutshell. <laughs> so can you just start out and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. I'm a developmental pediatrician by training. And I'm the Audrey G. Ratner Professor in Learning Development at Yale University. And I work together with my spouse, Dr. Bennett Shewitz, who's a child neurologist, and just recently stepped down from being Chief of Child Neurology at Yale to focus on our work in dyslexia. And I also am fortunate, I have three wonderful sons, all physicians, and one of them is a highly respected psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Shewitz, and he and I wrote the second edition of Overcoming Dyslexia. I wrote the first edition around 2000, 2003, and it's been remarkably successful It sold 400,000 or more copies, and people tell me it's their go-to book. It's on their nightstand at night. I'm a member of the National Academy of Science and also the American Association for the Advancement of Science, all sorts of things like that. And since the publication of the first edition, there has been so much progress in science that I said, oh, my goodness. I have to write a new edition so that people are aware of what the science is. And there really is very helpful science in all areas, screening, getting ready for college, anxiety, accommodations, law, you name it, it's there. 
And so together with Jonathan, I wrote the second edition published also by Penguin Random House. And it's very important because people have to know all this evidence, all the scientific knowledge. And I've several times been invited to speak to the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., and also the U.S. Senate to help educate lawmakers. And each time I say, we always want more knowledge, and in dyslexia too. But in the case of dyslexia, we have sufficient knowledge now to act better. So in dyslexia, rather than a knowledge gap, we have an action gap. We have to bring education together with 21st century science. We can do it, but we have to act. And we have to have people understand what evidence is and to use it. I'm already in love with you. (laughs) Definitely. When I sat down to reread the second edition, I read a good portion of the first one, but it was a long time ago. And you and I have had conversations about this before we're actually recording. And I told you how much it already has changed my own personal life. Here I am, several degrees in education, practicing, working with dyslexic children and adults. And even so, from reading this, I learned even more. And I'm sure if I go back and read it again, I'll learn even more. So from somebody who has been in education my entire life, and I know Rachel has too, we aren't taught much about this. It's sort of figure it out as you go or what somebody else seems to know. You follow the lead of learning from your peers rather than from teachers. Yeah. So if we think back to growing up, what dyslexia meant, what would you say your definition of dyslexia was, Rach? I would say it was like letter reversals. Mm -hmm. That the kids see the words on the page out of order and the letters out of order. That's a common misconception about what dyslexia actually is. Don't you think, Steph? I definitely think so. But all the knowledge that you have brought to what it actually can look like, and I think you use the term umbrella, of dyslexia. It's very, very important to first look at the big picture. And dyslexia was first described over a century ago by a British physician in 1896. And he described Persiap, a well-grown lad who was always bright and intelligent and quick at games. His great difficulty has been and is now his inability to learn to read. And they said the schoolmaster who taught him said he would be the smartest lad in the school if the instruction were entirely oral. And I should add, everything I say can be found in overcoming dyslexia. This is page 16. And I bring this up because it's been an unexpected difficulty from the beginning. And different people in the UK and in the US wrote about its unexpectedness. But people really somehow equated slow reading with slow thinking. And nothing could be further from the truth. And what's so interesting is the latest results from testing show a disturbing trend in which our country's poorest performing students scored worse than they did in 2016. 
So that reflects a growing gap between those at the top and the bottom of the achievement spectrum. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say what the current definition is, and then I will tell you some of the signs. I love it. Love it. Ready. Ready. Okay. (laughs) We are so fortunate because we now have, for the very first time, a federal, a federal definition of dyslexia, a 21st century definition, public law 115-391 was passed and signed into law in 2018. And you can find it on page 525 of overcoming dyslexia. And the definition, the legal definition states that dyslexia is an unexpected difficulty in reading for an individual who has the intelligence to be a much better reader. And then it goes on to say that it's most commonly caused by a difficulty in phonologic processing, et cetera, and that it affects the ability of an individual to speak, read, and spell. And this is really important. I direct a longitudinal study that's been going on for four decades. I always hate to say this because then people will say, how old is she? <laughs> I started when I was about eight. You're right, exactly. <laughs> so the validation of the unexpected comes from our data. We looked at reading and intelligence and looked at the relationship. In typical readers, they're very closely related. They're linked to IQ and reading. And one influences the other over time. So that if you're very smart, you are most likely to be a very good reader. And the reverse is if you're not such a good reader, you probably won't be so intelligent. But we who have a passion for dyslexia, were we going to stop at that? No. So what we did is we studied using the same methodology. We studied dyslexic individuals. And what we found was in dyslexia, IQ and reading diverge. What do I mean by that? In dyslexia, you can have a very high IQ and read at a far lower level. That is, your low reading is unexpected in relation to your level of intelligence. So I'm going to now tell you what some of the signs we can look for. And to do this, it's important for your listeners to appreciate that dyslexia, in order to read, you know, speaking is natural. When a newborn baby comes into the world, we don't have to go and say, oh, let me get the manual to teach that child to speak. That child will almost 100% close to learn to speak. But reading is not natural, it's artificial. It's been around about 5,000 years or so. So how do you learn to read? How do you connect the letters to words? The first step is to be able to pull apart spoken words and then to be able to connect letters to sounds. And for many people, that's not a problem. But for people who are dyslexic, it is. So what you can look for, even early on, you know what 
children have problems with, even early on, recognizing that words rhyme. Because thinking it hat, sat, mat, the last two letters rhyme. So children, you know, early on can tell you that. Dyslexic children have trouble with that because they can't pull apart the word and focus just on that rhyme. They have trouble learning letters and letter sounds, sounding out words. I know that you, Stephanie, will agree with this because you've seen it. People who are dyslexic have word retrieval difficulties. Yep. And in overcoming dyslexia, I actually graphed it out so people could explain. So in order to say something, you first have to have the idea, the concept. And dyslexics have no problem with that. Aha. And that's in your brain. But in order to utter the word, then you have to be able to access and retrieve each of the sounds, line them up, and they will be what powers the muscles of articulation to say the word. So even though the person knows what they want to say, the wrong word will come out or there'll be long delays. And it's also very embarrassing. So seeing that, reading, hard time learning to read, even though these are bright individuals and the parents said, oh, you're going to love a starting school. You're going to learn to read. It's going to be so much fun. And how I got into all of this is um, I should tell you, I took off eight years to stay home with my children. I had a son and then two years later, I had two more. So I had three under two. And so <laughs> I, I actually enjoyed it. Although there were moments, as you <laughs> fair, and so I was asked by Yale to see families with young children who were just starting school were having difficulties, and it struck me these parents, who I'm sure were so glowing, couldn't wait for their child to start school, the children were struggling, and they couldn't understand why, and the children were feeling awful, and as I looked in the literature. It wasn't very much. And so I began to set up a study called the Connecticut Longitudinal Study, which began in 1983. And I'll tell you more about it in a bit. But the signs you could see is that a child's reading is slow, it's choppy, they lack a strategy. And the worst thing, reading out loud in front of your classmates. 100%. The kids will tease them, and the teacher will say, how do you not know it? You knew it yesterday. You're not working hard enough. And then they'll go out to PE, to the playground, and they'll get teased. So it's really horrible. And they may turn away from reading. Oh, it's so boring. So in addition to problems in speaking and in reading, Children will have problems in spelling. It's going from sounds, hearing the word, to letters. And that's really a hard thing for children and adults who are dyslexic. Often, they may have poor handwriting. But I'll remind you, they can be very good at typing. And what many people may not be aware of, 
because I hear it from teachers and parents, oh, he or she doesn't pay attention. So there are two parts to that. One is there's a huge comorbidity overlap between dyslexia and attention problems. About 40 to 50% or more of people, children and adults who have one, have the other, comorbidity. And if you're not dyslexic and you're a typical reader, you have those automatic brain systems and reading is automatic. You know, and children who are dyslexic look at their classes and say, how are they doing that? In dyslexia, reading isn't automatic. So you have to take the secondary non-automatic route. And that means you're using up your attention. So your attention is very fragile. So you can see the results of that. Also, problems learning a foreign language. Think of it. These children have had difficulty connecting letters to sounds in their native language, which they hear at home and in school. Imagine what happens to them when they have to learn a foreign language. It's horrible. At Yale, I co-direct with Bennett Sherwood's the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. And we see anyone at Yale who might be struggling like that. And we have seen so many bright Yale students who are trying so hard and they just can't learn the foreign language. And it sucks away the time they could devote to courses they can be interested in and can be successful in. So what we have been able to do, when I say we, Bennett and I, and wonderful people in the Yale administration, is you can now... If you're dyslexic, and typically we're the ones who evaluate you and diagnose you, if you are, you can apply for a partial waiver of the foreign language requirement. And this is so important because so many high schools and colleges don't get it. And they make the kids take the foreign language. There's no point to it. And so that's why I mentioned Yale does this. And it's the right thing to do because what you do then is you have to take a course in the culture or the history of a country that doesn't speak English. You actually gain something rather than killing yourself. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another thing that's really very common, anxiety. It's really huge. And anxiety comes when you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. And you're sitting there in class, uh-oh, am I going to be called on, let's see, one, two, three, uh-oh. Yeah. Or am I going to be made fun of or whatever. So anxiety, and that's an area that my son, Dr. Jonathan Shaywitz, is really expert in. So these are the main symptoms, but there's also something else. In our studies, and it's in the book, we found that, you know, children who are dyslexic have difficulties connecting letters to sounds, which influence their ability to decode and read quickly. But at the same time, they have strengths in higher level functioning. And we developed the Sea of Strengths model to capture and conceptualize dyslexia. 
And what that model says is that you can have a weakness in getting to the sounds of letters. So you'll be a slow reader, etc. And at the same time, if you're surrounded by a sea of strengths in higher level thinking, in big picture thinking, in reasoning, critical thinking, vocabulary, problem solving, creative thinking, comprehension, concept formation. So in all of these things, dyslexics do exceptionally well. The problem is when you're in school, it's your reading difficulties that are noticeable. Your strength isn't, but it's important for people to be aware that there's the sea of strengths. And that's why it's very, very important to be identified, to be diagnosed, and to know what you have. Because then you know that you're not stupid. Yes. Right. Okay. This is on pages 304 to 309. So you know that what you have has a name, dyslexia. It means being smart and having trouble learning to read. And this is so important that dyslexia occurs in smart people who have a small weakness in getting to the sounds of words, surrounded by a sea of strengths in higher level thinking, and that your brain is working. You don't have holes or abnormalities. It's a functional and not a structural difference. And it's a paradox, in a sense, the strengths and the weakness. And we made out what we call the yellow card. And it's in the book on page 98 to capture the paradox of dyslexia. You may be dyslexic if you, and what it is, it's a series of paired comparisons. The first is a difficulty and the second is the strength. Here they are. You may be dyslexic if you read slowly and with much effort are often the one to solve the problem. You may be dyslexic if you can't spell and have messy handwriting. Your writing shows terrific imagination. You may be dyslexic if you have trouble remembering dates and names. At the same time, you think out of the box and grasp the big picture. And here's the final comparison. Have difficulty retrieving and pronouncing spoken words. And at the same time, have an excellent vocabulary and ideas. The takeaway from all of this, for me, that it looks so different for every single individual. And I think we've put in a box what dyslexia should look like, as we learned in school, at least for me. And there are so many other components going on. And as you and I have spoken previously to before we hit record, in my life, I have seen that sometimes the misuse of a word happens, but not all the time. Right. And it's not black or white. Sometimes it can happen and sometimes it doesn't. And coming from a better place of understanding for me was huge. And I've worked with dyslexic children and adults for a long time, but this is deeper for me in understanding exactly 
what it looks like when it's not just teaching reading, like where it's showing up, even when you have somebody who... It's high functioning. Yeah, and can read just fine, that it still is showing up later on in adulthood and what that can look like. And having some understanding and empathy, I think for me personally, has been remarkable learning from you. Well, thank you. That's wonderful. And I want to bring up one other really important point. As I mentioned, I began this study, the Connecticut Longitudinal Study, way back, maybe even before you were born, <laughs> <laughs> in 1983. <laughs> I wasn't born yet. <laughs> back in 1983, and this is on pages 25 to 35, we developed the Connecticut Longitudinal Study. It has two important components. It's an epidemiologic sample survey. What does that mean? We, working with a survey statistician, enrolled a random, not just dyslexic, a random sample of 445 boys and girls who were about to enter kindergarten, we had minimal exclusionary criteria. And this was in 1983. Now, in 2021, we're still following them, uninterrupted, continuously, 38 years and going strong. So they are now 43 years old, and we are still following 82%, 360. So cool. And so this is a unique opportunity to look at, you know, I'm a mother and so many of us are, you know, you want to see when the child's young, what could I do that will make a difference, that will be positive in the long run, or what should I do? So here, we're able to have the five, six, seven-year-old, eight-year-old data and the outcome data because we're testing their reading and we can do it. You won't be surprised if I tell you my husband figured out how to do that. <laughs> and we're asking them about their lives. And we can also look at outcome and say, what was done early on that led to better or less good outcomes? So what we have found from this study is, one, dyslexia is universal. It affects all races, ethnicities socioeconomic groups. My book has been translated into several Chinese dialects, Japanese, Korean, Middle East, etc. So how prevalent is dyslexia? I won't ask you ladies because you read my book, so you know. But if you go into a school and you say, well, how prevalent is dyslexia? Oh, we don't have those kids. I know. Or maybe 2%. Well, what we did that schools do not do is we tested everybody. And what we found was that one in five children are dyslexic. That's 10 million children in this country. Every class has children who are struggling readers. We also affect, it used to be thought that dyslexia only affected boys. Really, until about the 1980s, 1990s. But we did a study, and as part of a longitudinal study, by questioning teachers about certain things, it affects both boys and girls. And if you look at specialized schools for dyslexia, they're just about equal numbers. 
And we also found that dyslexia is persistent. It doesn't go away. It's lifelong. You, you can get better, but you'll always be dyslexic. So it's a really big problem about schools. And one of the things is to be counted, you first have to be identified. If you're not identified, you can't be counted. So, and what we found too, that dyslexia is the most common learning disability affecting 80 to 90% of all individuals who are labeled learning disabled. And we found something really, really important. So our most recent finding, when does the achievement gap between typical and dyslexic readers emerge? You know when it's evident? As early as first grade. When I was reading this in your book, first of all, it made me angry. And I kept thinking back, you know, we screen students for scoliosis. We all went through that. I just looked it up because as I was reading this, I was like, I never knew anybody who was diagnosed with scoliosis personally, but I looked it up and only a hundred thousand, not only, but a hundred thousand people a year will be diagnosed with scoliosis. But you're sitting here telling us that there are 10 million children out there. So I guess this begs the question, why are we not screening in kindergarten and or first grade for this population if we know and this may go back to sort of your policymaking advocacy. Why are we not screening them? Why is this not standard process of what kids go through in kindergarten and first grade? I think part of it is a lack of understanding. And part of it is, I hesitate to say, not the greatest desire to identify because then you have to serve. And so let me tell you that what we found and this was actually published, it's in Overcoming Dyslexia, this graph, but also on page 141, but we also published it in the Journal of Pediatrics. So you see this gap, and it's there over time. It's there. And you know, there are a number of reasons why it's so important to identify early. But if you look at it and look at 141 in the second edition, because page 141, because what you see is the slope. The slope for reading acquisition is steepest early on. Yeah, take a look. Yeah, we're both looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, oh, I see it. Yep. Mm-hmm. It means reading acquisition is fastest and greatest early on. Right. And then as children get older, it flattens and plateaus. So it's much more difficult to get improvement, not impossible, but difficult because it's maximal reading growth the first few years of school and then plateaus. And when Bennett Shaywitz and I saw that, we said, oh, my God, because we hear a lot of the nonsense. Oh, we screen kids doing yababa. Oh, wow, really? So what we did is we said, We have to do something for when the slope for learning is greatest, and it's best to identify at risk and provide intervention. So you can't wait. And so what we did is we actually developed a dyslexia screen. And what we did also, we do science and we do advocacy. We don't do distribution. 
So we gave the dyslexia screen to Pearson Publishers. We had worked with them on the whisk by and had a good relationship. It's a little embarrassing, but they named the screen the Shaywood's Dyslexia Screen. That's not embarrassing. Own it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>